Glad you're here this morning. Thank you for being a part of this. We are starting uh, the New Testament. We're doing our New Testament survey this morning. This is something that we had, uh, we'd, we'd been working through the Bible. It took us about, what, two and a half years to get through the Old Testament like this. You guys were real patient and you hung in there through a lot of it. We went through a lot of history a lot of archaeology, and a lot of things. If you missed that series, it is available on the Internet, uh, thanks to all of you strong volunteers who put the Internet ministry together. And I urge you to go there if you find something that you want to look at or think about or find of use. Then this summer, we took a hiatus so that we could deal with what really is orthodoxy and Christian theology in modern terms and in our modern culture. We called it your God is still too small. That series now set aside, though, though there are two lessons that I just didn't have time to get to that I need to add to that at some point, but I'll do that in writing, um, uh, not uh, in class. And then today we start our New Testament study. And I'm giving you this background for two reasons. Number one, it's useful. And number two, it gives everybody a chance to come in and get a seat before we get into substance. So uh, uh, let me tell you, this class is really targeted. If you were, were in a, a seminary or in a, 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 a secondary study program of some college or something, university, and you were to take a basic New Testament survey course, our goal here is to put forward much of the same material that you would get in a class like that. Now, I can't give you seminary college credit for this. Actually, I can. It just won't be recognized by anybody. But you make it through at least 70% of this class. No tests. I give you an A, and you get five credits, okay? Now, with that, let's begin with our New Testament survey. And I'd love to tell you we're going to start with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. But that wouldn't be right. Because it wouldn't be fair. Because we would not be able to dig as deeply as we can if we do something else. So today we start with the lesson of nutgrass. I don't know how many of you work in gardens. I hate nutgrass. Nutgrass I consider the cockroach of the garden world. I, it's everywhere. And what you see is only a little bit of what's really there. And try as you might, you can't kill it. You can't get rid of it. Oh, you say, just pull it up. No, that doesn't work. Because you see, nutgrass underneath, it's got this real thin little stem that's real easy. You pull off the top, and you've still got down in the bottom, usually two to three inches in my garden, a little kernel or a little nut. And you can't get it Unless you dig down with your fingers or some tool and you grab it. and You have to feel for it. And that's where fire ants are. And that's where all these other things are that just make it not a really fun chore. So you think, well, I'll just get to it. Some, you see that nut? It sends out little runners off to the side that produce new nuts. And each of those nuts produce new shoots of nut grass. And this stuff's everywhere. You look at it on the surface and you're not seeing one nth of what you're really dealing with because what you're dealing with is in the roots and not just the roots, sometimes in the hidden kernels that you've really got to dig deep to find. 
Now, here's the reason I bring that up. We're looking at the New Testament. And the New Testament is very different in some ways than the Old Testament. Certainly, the New Testament is built on the Old Testament. It's prophetically following the same themes, and it's certainly placed in the same area of the world. But the New Testament has some very strong differences. And if we're going to understand the New Testament, we need to have a good foundation of at least understanding what roots are involved. We may not be able to dig down and grab all of the roots, but these first couple of classes, we're going to at least try and penetrate the root system and understand where there are roots, where there are kernels, where it needs to be dug, so that as we continue to go through class, we're able to refer back. If you want to understand why we have three synoptic Gospels, if you want to understand why Jesus wrote in parables, if you want to understand why it is that we have epistles and letters in the New Testament, which you don't really have in the Old Testament, These things we cannot understand if we don't understand the background of the New Testament. The New Testament has a language that's different than the Old Testament. And we need to learn some of that language and look at some of that language. The New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament in Hebrew and a little Aramaic. Actually, there's an Aramaic phrase and a couple of Aramaic words in the New Testament. But by and large, it's Greek. Not only will we need to look at the language, though, we're going to need to look at some archaeology. We're going to see some different things when we look at the archaeology of the New Testament than the Old Testament. The geography is much the same, but it draws some different importance now. Those aren't the issues for this morning. The issues for this morning, though, are a little bit different. And I grab them before I get into them. I want to give you Galatians 4, 4 through 5. This is your passage for the day. Paul wrote to the Galatian church and he said, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That as sons is not because women are excluded. He says as sons, we all receive adoptions as sons. Because Paul's writing at the time of the Roman Empire. And when sons were adopted, they were entitled to property, citizenship, and all sorts of rights that an adopted daughter would not be entitled to. But you don't even understand that. If we don't understand the culture involved. And the key to this verse that I really want to seize on is when the fullness of time had come. God's timing was right For Jesus' incarnation. God's timing was right. That means if you look at the past and if you look at the future, it's at the right moment that God chose for Jesus to be incarnated. Now, was that because there was some magic to him dying at that moment? And if he hadn't died at that moment, then things would not have worked in a heavenly sense? Not really, no. We know from what Paul wrote to the Romans that the death of Jesus was the death for all sins 
including those of Abraham, that God had in his patience passed over. So God wasn't limited in time and needed it at this moment. If Jesus hadn't died at precisely that moment, then the sins of the world would have gone uh, unredeemed. No. What Paul's talking about, rather, is something that's real basic in real history. It was the right time in the history of this planet and our people, humanity, for Jesus to come. For Jesus to be born of a woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Now, if we are to look at this, I want to start focusing on what, why the timing was right between the past and the coming of Jesus. So kind of focus in on that area for just a moment. We ended our Old Testament study with Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and, and they returned from captivity. A good bit of the Jews did not return, but those that did around 400 B.C. were still living under the Persian Empire. The start of the New Testament is around somewhere the events, 6 or 4 B.C. Jesus is born somewhere around there. If you're still thinking, wait a minute, I thought he was born at zero. Well, so did Dionysius Exegus when he did the chronology around the 6, 700s. Uh, uh, but he was wrong. He missed it. He, he was not good at math. Uh, his, he was a monk who was charged by the Pope to figure it out. His Latin name was Dionysius Exegus. In English, that's Dennis the Short. And he was just a little short on going back far enough for the birth of Christ. So, Jesus is born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. We'll talk about that. And we'll establish that as we get through this. But when we ended the Old Testament, the Persian Empire was in charge of the Holy Land, and most of the civilized world. When we ended the Old Testament, the Jews were trying to restore Jerusalem. They were rebuilding walls. They were rebuilding the temple. They were reestablishing sacrifice. They were drawing back on the priesthood. They were trying to walk under the law. That's going on in 400 B.C. as we close the last page of the Old Testament. And then we open the New Testament, and all of a sudden it's Romans. Where are the Persians? Now we're reading about Pharisees. Who are they? You won't find them in the Old Testament. Now we're reading about Sadducees. Never heard of them in the Old Testament. We're reading about synagogues. You don't find them mentioned in the Old Testament. Somewhere in this 400 year period, lots of things happened. And we can't understand the culture and the context of the New Testament unless we look at some of those lots of things that happened. So that's where I'd really like us to focus today. And I want us to do it today. We're going to look at the history that happened. It's just world history. Next week, we're going to look at some of the documents that were written during this period of time. It's very interesting. The Jews say Scripture closed around 400 B.C. But there are lots of documents written afterwards. 
I had a young gentleman come up to me before class and say to me, can you tell me some of the differences between the Catholic Church and the Baptist Church? One of the differences that I didn't get to talk to him about is the Catholic Bible's got more pages in it. Because the Catholic Bible includes a set of books called the Apocrypha that are not in the Protestant Bibles, by and large. So we'll talk about that as well, but more so next week than this week. The handout you got, don't panic. If you're walking through it with me while I'm talking and you're thinking, ooh, he's only on page two and he's wasted ten minutes. If you're doing the math, you'll already know that handout's probably good for two weeks. So let's talk about history for just a moment. The Old Testament closes with the Persian Empire ruling almost as far as India, not quite, but ruling through much of what's modern Turkey all the way down through the Holy Land into Egypt. Now, if you're looking, thinking, why didn't it go all the way down into Saudi Arabia? That's desert. It wasn't worth conquering. Why didn't it go further past Egypt where it is? That's desert. It wasn't worth conquering. You could, you could say, oh, yes, that's ours, but nobody's stationed out there. They don't have anything to drink or eat. So by and large, the limits of the Persian Empire are what we see there. This Persian Empire has Jews in Jerusalem, but we know they're not only in Jerusalem. We know they're in northern Egypt near the Delta. We know they're in southern Egypt, at least on the island of Elephantine, because there's a Jewish temple there or a synagogue there. We know that during this period of time, they're dotted all up and down the Tigris and the Euphrates River. We know from the Bible they were over in Susa, the capital of Persia. So you've got Jews throughout the entire Persian region that we can verify being there. This is called by theologians the diaspora, which is from the Greek for the dispersing, the dispersion. The Jews are no longer all in Israel. By the mighty hand of God in history, through turmoil and difficulty, the Jews have spread out throughout the Persian Empire. And that's where we ended the Old Testament. So during the Old Testament, we've got that. Now, after the Old Testament closes, something starts happening up in a country called Macedon, up there in north of Greece proper. They had a king named Philip II, who was good at war, and he was real into education and intellect. He had engineers that he had trained, and he charged them and paid them to invent new ways to be great armies. They invented new ways to dig under walls so that the walls would crumble more readily. They, they, they invented new ways to have battering rams that had more engine torque to them to knock down walls. They invented all sorts of new things. They were the cutting-edge military power. And he would send his 16-year-old son out to fight. Now, I don't know how many of you have 16-year-old boys or no 16-year-old boys or may have been 16-year-old boys, but there are some 16-year-old boys who are fighters just by nature. And this boy happened to be one of them. So his dad would let the boy go out with the generals and lead the armies 
while the dad was leading other armies. So Philip II's fighting and his son is fighting. When his son is just 20 years old, in 336 B.C., dad dies. So Philip II's dad and son becomes king. His name is Alexander. Alexander becomes king and immediately kills all of the rivals. And everybody's thinking this 20-year-old pup is king. Now's the time to rebel. So all the little territories that were under the control of Macedon start rebelling. And Alexander takes the army out to show them who's who. And he marches north to the Danube River and he conquers all of those people. Puts them under his feet. Then the Greeks are rebelling, so he goes south and he conquers the rest of Greece. Having done that, he does what dad wasn't able to do. He crosses the Hellespont, goes into Asia, Turkey, and he starts beating up Persians. And he wins, and he wins, and he wins, and he wins. A massive battle at this point. The Persian king retreats. Darius III retreats. And Alexander just continues at this point. We're in the winter of 333 to 332. Alexander continues to go down the coast toward the Holy Land. And as he works his way down Tyre, they don't surrender readily. The northern part of what we would call Israel, Samaria, they don't surrender readily. Actually, they do at first, and then they rebel. He has to bring in a bunch more troops. He gets mad. He slaps them around, and then he puts a bunch of Macedonians, Macedonians in there to interbreed even more, hence more of the Samaritan problem in the New Testament. He goes down. He gets to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem says, uh, here are our gates. We're going to open them for you. And depending upon the historical sources you read, if you read the Jewish historian Josephus, who was writing for the Romans in about 94 A.D., he says this is the way it went down. Alexander was really upset with the Jews because the Jews would not initially succumb. Or maybe he saw them as an extension of the Samaritans. So Alexander decides he's going to go smash Jerusalem. The high priest hears about it, dresses in white, dresses all of his priests in white, which is kind of like a white flag, and goes out to meet Alexander on the road. He's wearing the mitre with the, 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 the insignia of Yahweh on it. And he comes out offering sacrifices and everything, and Alexander actually bows down in front of him, realizing the priest has come out and is giving the city to him. And Alexander bows down because this priest represents a god, and Alexander doesn't trifle with gods yet. And then the priest brings Alexander in, and he takes him to the temple, and he opens up the book of Daniel to him, if we could have the monitor. And the priest reads him this out of Daniel. I don't know if you can see it or not, so I'm going to read it to you. Daniel, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. So, of course, at this point, Alexander, who knows his history, says, Wow, this is an old prophecy. 
I'll be interested to see what the vision was. Here it is. I raised my eyes. I saw there was a ram standing. There was a ram standing on the bank of the canal. All right, that makes sense because Euphrates and Tigris, those bunch of canals down there. Both of the, it had two horns that were high, one higher than the other. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. There was none who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased. He became great. Alexander's thinking, hmm, two-horned beast down on the Tigris and Euphrates. I don't know if Alexander was smart enough to know that might be the king of the Medes and the Persians, which is what the Persian king was. Two empires, Medes and Persians. But he certainly could have known that the Persian king did charge westward, northward, and southward. He already controlled the east. No beast could stand before him. There was none who could rescue. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. He flew across the earth. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. One big old horn. Just one guy from one kingdom. He came to the ram with the two horns, the king of Persia, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal and ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram. He was enraged against him. He struck the ram. He broke his horns. The ram had no power to stand before him. He cast him to the ground and trampled on him. There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. And I suspect, if the story is accurate, the priest would have gone on to read the explanation of the dream. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. There stood before me one in the appearance of a man. I said, Gabriel, make, or he hears a voice, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So Gabriel spoke and said, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. It refers to the appointed time of the end. The ram with the two horns, the kings of the Media and Persians. And the goat, the male goat, is the king of Greece. So Alexander, according to Josephus, hears this and sees prophetically in the writings that he is designated to conquer the Medes and the Persians. He loves them. He's very, very, very happy. And so he treats Jerusalem wonderfully well. He doesn't sack the city. He doesn't pillage the city. He doesn't take away temple treasuries. He treats it with great respect. And goes back to going down and just wiping out all of Egypt. And when he's done wiping out Egypt, he chases the Persian king, perhaps confident in the prophetic word of Daniel, all the way to his empire and wipes him out. And then he proceeds to go all the way into India, where at some point, our young, vigorous king, who's just interested in conquering more and more and more, has an army that says, gee, I'd like to go home. And so he's kind of forced to end his expansion. 
But what happens is the largest empire the world has known, the empire of Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great, I want to talk about him a little bit more. I told you his dad was real interested in education and military. When Alexander was 14, his dad got him a tutor. He brought a tutor up from Greece, Greece being the seat of all things wise and wonderful. His tutor, a man named Aristotle, student of Plato, student of Socrates. Direct chain, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander. And for two years at least, Alexander and other men of court, other teenage boys, study from Aristotle. And, and the education is significant because it's not just reading and writing and arithmetic, but it's culture, it's science, it's a way of thinking, it's logic, it's reason, it's rhetoric. And when Alexander conquers the world, he spreads Greek culture everywhere. He takes the Greek language and makes it known. He founds at least 20 different cities, most of which he named after himself. He found cities to be um, lights of Greek culture, to shed and permeate Greek culture throughout the land. He makes Greek the official language that everybody should be speaking, writing, using. Greek banking takes over. He mints coins that have his face on them and they're to be used throughout the territory. He puts Greek schools into place. And the Greeks had an education system not just for the 8 to 14 year olds where they would learn reading, writing, and arithmetic from 14 to 18. They would go on to secondary school where they would learn strategy and rhetoric and they'd learn to memorize the poets and Homer. And then after 18 they'd go to the gymnasium where they'd learn battle and war and strategy and tactics. So we put these schools out there as well. And this radically changed the world. Put his empire back in the drawing. All of this becomes a Greek world. Now one of the cities he founded is this city called Alexandria in Egypt. It quickly becomes, I might add, the largest city in the world. Alexandria is not just a city, but, but it's a place of schools. It's a place of the Greek language. And it's a place that Alexander loved for a while. But bless his heart, after about 10 years of rampaging around the world, he died. They shipped his body eventually to Alexandria, put him in a glass car sarcophagus, even Augustus Caesar, 300 years later, comes to view the body in Alexandria. But when he dies, he doesn't really have an heir apparent. Oh, he's got a wife and she's pregnant. But do you really think an empire that large is going to wait around to see what kind of baby she has? No. So there's an immediate struggle. And finally, over the next 20 years, four different kingdoms kind of come about. The Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt, the Seleucid kingdom in Persia, the, the Macedonian kingdom prevails with Greece, and then Pergamum is right in that area of Asia Minor. And four of Alexander's generals kind of each consolidate an army and take each of these areas. 
it might be, you might be saying, what a weird name, Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic kingdom. That's because the name of the first in that uh, line of, ki- of generals, kings, is named Ptolemy. So you've got Ptolemaics. Seleucus is the name of another general king. He starts the Seleucid dynasty. And so you have it. Now, if you look at the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic, Ptolemy's down here in Egypt, Seleucid's up in Persia. What's kind of in the middle? Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. And sure enough, there's a constant jockeying for that. The Seleucids want that area because it helps them get to the Mediterranean for trade. The Ptolemaics want it because it helps them go north and trade with Syria and, and uh, Turkey and those areas. So there's a constant struggle for that, that little piece of soil in the world. Now, Alexandria, meanwhile, continues to grow and continues to thrive. They build the world's largest lighthouse, becomes one of the seven wonders of the ancient world on a little island right outside, not only to help ships come in, but to signify to everyone Alexandria was the lighthouse of the world. They are the power. Alexandria develops the world's first large library. Over 400,000 volumes. Don't have books yet. These are scrolls. The world's first museum. So Alexandria does this, the Ptolemies do this as kings. You want 400,000 volumes? That's not easy to find. That's a lot of writing. You've got to figure each one of those are hand copied. That's not go to the store and buy them. 400,000 handwritten scrolls. And if we add back to our picture now the diaspora with all these different Jewish communities, we know that there are a lot of Jews in Alexandria. We know that there are ties between that and Jerusalem. Doesn't it make sense that the king, the way the story is told uh, uh, in a letter that was written around 200 B.C., the letter of Aristius, the letter says that what happened is the head of the library... The, the head librarian, Sharon, uh, the head of the library goes to the king and says, look, we got all these Jews. And that's a hot spot anyway. They've got holy writings that are in Hebrew and Aramaic. We really need to translate those into Greek because that's the language of the world now. And the king says, okay, and sends ambassadors to the high priest in Jerusalem. The high priest in Jerusalem, and here the story's probably a little fictitious, sends 72 scholars to Alexandria who happen to translate and write the Old Testament into Greek in 72 days. They picked 72 to signify six translators for each of the 12 tribes. This translation of the Old Testament scrolls into Greek is called the Septuagint. Now, the letter of Orestius is not totally accurate, and and it probably wasn't all translated at once. And and there's a good indication that, that the Jews were still debating even some of what was prophetic and what wasn't. But at least we know the Septuagint, which are the 
Septuagint, by the way, is Latin for 70. See, the, the whole name comes off the idea that there were 70 or 72 scholars that came and did it in 70 or 72 days. So you've got the Septuagint now. So now you've got Hebrew scriptures written in Greek. And I might add, these are the scriptures that Paul quotes from. The library at Alexandria, this is an aside, it's a freebie. No, I'll put it in a lesson. In a, never mind. You don't get it yet. You've got to come back. So, you also have here, all of this schooling produces a class of scribes. People who are able to read and write and who are charged with doing so. Now, you did have scribes in the Old Testament, but they were rare. Now, you've got them well-schooled and becoming not just an occasional Ezra the scribe or the scribe of the king, but you've got an entire class of scribes People who go to school and learn how to write and uh, uh, have a trade for that. So this is what you have. Now, meanwhile, over in the West, there is this murmuring and grumbling that proceeds forth from the boot. Italy manages to conquer Carthage and starts moving toward the East. And the Roman Empire starts taking over. All of the four regions from Alexander's Empire, they're not very good at keeping peace among themselves, and they kind of eat away at each other, which made them ripe pickings for the Romans. During the time that the Romans start to move westward, Jerusalem decides, hey, we'd like to shift, and we'd like to go over and be Seleucid instead of Egyptian and Ptolemaic. This shifting goes back and forth until the, about 180 A.D. At this point, by 202 actually, 202, the Jews officially become Seleucids. But problems happen. Uh, I just put up Sadducees. Time out. Got to tell you about the Sadducees. When there's this debating back and forth about what's going on, there are a group of Sodics, which are righteous people, who are zealots, who decide that they want to actually, they're more concerned with the politics of the situation. And these are a bunch of Jews who are the wealthy people, the aristocrats, who want to be in control of government and want to be in control and in power. They are the Sadducees. And so they're very concerned about just the, the Torah and the law, but their greater concern are the politics of the day. So they're the ones who are parsing back and forth which empire to support. Finally, they go with the Seleucids, and that works out fine until about 175, 180, when this new king, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, which means God manifested. He said, I'm God among you decides that he's going to go down and fight Egypt and on the way gets into a knockdown drag out with Jerusalem. He massacres 80,000 Jews. He not only massacres these Jews, but he insists one high priest is deposed, he's taken down, the next high priest is just appointed, Jason by Antiochus uh, uh, Epiphanes. Jason helps make things Greek. He puts in a naked gymnasium and does things like that. Then, yeah, the gymnasiums were naked. Um, then, so were the Olympics then. Then, for the competitors, not for the observers. Then, I want to be clear here. Then, Jason, who's the high priest, 
when he's not looking, another high priest goes and pays a little bit more money to get the job. So Alexander, I'm not Alexander, Antiochus deposes Jason, puts in a new high priest. And then they declare, they start sacrificing a pig on the altar of the temple. And they turn it into a worship center for Zeus. They burn all of the scriptures. They burn all of the holy writings. And they try to destroy the priesthood and make it illegal to observe any Jewish holiday or festivity or the Sabbath. This does not fly well. And so there's a group of people who decide that they're going to fight. And ultimately the guerrilla war is won by a fellow named Judas Maccabeus who's got an army. It's the Maccabean Revolution and the Maccabees all go in force. He's one of five brothers whose daddy started out as the, the, the Rambo of his day. And they all go forward and they manage to fight so well that when Antiochus Epiphanes IV dies, the new king says, enough of you. I just don't care that much about you. You are hillbillies anyway. And he says, I'll give you peace. You have Jerusalem. And they go and they rededicate the temple. And they only have enough oil to burn one day, even though they need the candlesticks, the menorah to burn for eight. And the oil magically lasts or miraculously lasts for eight days. And that's the source of Hanukkah. That's the celebration of Hanukkah. Now, there's a group of people who may have come from the ultra-right wing of, of obedience to God who get very upset with the Sadducees and the way they'd been playing politics and say, you brought this massacre upon us, you messed up, we need to be diligent, we need to do exactly what the law says and we can't go messing around with any other gods. Those people are called Pharisees. So the Pharisees arise during this time period, zealous for the law. If you were to read what the Jewish encyclopedia says about Pharisees at the time, it says Pharisees conceived of God as an omnipotent spiritual being, all wise, all just, all merciful. They taught that God loved all his creatures and asked man to walk in his ways, to act justly, and to love kindness. Though all-knowing and omnipotent, God endowed man with the power to choose between good and evil. Now that doesn't sound all that bad, does it? Because you've been reading the writings of one Pharisee, a fellow named Paul, who's a Pharisee of Pharisees, even as a Christian believer, he considered himself a Pharisee in terms of his theology. Now we'll see some Pharisees who had hard hearts, who had become legalists, and Jesus will confront them, and those same Pharisees, like Paul, will take issue with the New Testament Christians and say, time out, this is just like before. You're embracing another God. Now it's this fellow named Jesus. And all you're going to do is get us wiped out again. And so Paul, the zealous Pharisee, will try to kill and imprison Christians to stop that heresy until he finds out the truth of it. But I've gotten ahead of us. So let's go back. Rome continues to expand and spread. 
And as Rome continues to expand and spread, the Republic of Rome changes. In the mid-50s B.C., there's a very successful Roman general who brings his army into Rome itself and takes over the Republic, takes over the Senate, and sets himself up as a dictator and a king. His name, Julius Kaiser. Julius Caesar becomes king. He gets killed, 44 B.C., at 2 Brute, yes. And when he's killed, there's a fuss and fight over who's going to be the next ruler of Rome or will it all fall apart. Anthony's trying to, to do the deal with Cleopatra so that they can have this tandem going of ruling. Cleopatra, I might add, still a Ptolemy. In fact, the last ruling Ptolemy in Egypt is Cleopatra. So they're fighting, they're working together, but it doesn't work out. There's this young Roman who takes over. He becomes the next king. He wins everything, changes his name to Augustus Caesar, and reigns as the Caesar between 27 B.C. and 14 A.D. Luke 2, verse 1 says, In those days a decree went out to Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This gets us historically to the New Testament. So what happened? How did the Persian Empire and the efforts to restore the temple in Jerusalem turn into a complete system under the Roman Empire with Pharisees, Sadducees, and the synagogues? How did the Greek language become everywhere? How did people have copies of the Greek scriptures throughout the world and the dispersion so that when Paul could go to, to, to synagogues throughout all of the Roman Empire, he could, he could read from their scriptures and they had them in Greek. He could quote from them in Greek. Why is the New Testament in Greek? Why was the world ripe? For Paul and other missionaries to be able to journey throughout all of the world in the peace of the Romans, the Pax Romani. Because the Romans set up roads and they had peace and they had one economy. And they set up a system populated with Roman citizens built upon the Greek ideas of Alexander. And that's the history. Now the documents, they're fascinating. And I promise, don't just read what I gave you, but I'll give you more if you'll come back next week when we talk about the documents. Because the documents are, you know, we know about the Apocrypha by and large. Oh yeah, those are those extra books. Those are the ones in the Catholic Bible, but not in mine. Well, I'd like to talk to you about why they're in the Catholic Bible and why they're not in the Protestant Bible. I'd like to talk to you about what those books are and what difference they might make anyway. All of those lessons you can only understand if you've got this history under your belt. Because you, you've got to understand where the Jews said prophecy ended, and yet there were still holy writings. That's why we call them the Apocrypha, but most Catholic scholars will call it deuterocanonical literature, because it's the second canon. We can talk about that next week, but we're also going to talk next week about the pseudepigrapha. You said, the pseudo who? Is this a lawyer term? He sued the pigrapha? No, it's not a lawyer term. The pseudepigrapha is another collection of Hebrew writings 
that in some ways are absolutely bizarre. They give you the name of Cain's wife, if you ever wanted to know it. That's, uh, they, uh, they, uh, uh, and it's not Mrs. Kane. It's a legitimate name. Um, they, uh, uh, um, they, they have their, they talk about the Messiah coming in all of the language and color of the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature among other kinds. So we're going to talk about those things next week as well. I'm excited about this study. I'm excited because if you've been going to church and Bible school for 150 years, my goal is to make sure that every Sunday I offer you something that you haven't studied before. I'm making that commitment to you to work toward that end. We've got some incredible scholars in here, so that'll take a lot of work. And it's not because I'm smart, and it's not because I'm that well-read. It's because the Word of God is that deep. And it grows down just like nut grass, except it's the tree of life. It grows down with roots and kernels that you can't ever get all of. Try as you might. Points for home. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, Paul said in Romans 3. This is the same Paul who said Jesus came at just the right time. The Jews had been entrusted. That word entrusted. The oracles of God were something that they were given and responsible for. And they met that responsibility. We'll go into it more next week when we compare Scripture to other Jewish writings. They knew the difference. They had both. And why did they have what they had? We'll talk about next week. I want a commitment from you if you're here today and you think that God can use this in your life. I want a commitment from you to join me in spending the time and energy to learn why it was so important to God to entrust His oracles. And if this is not the class for you to learn it, find it in another class. But I want you to join me in that commitment. I'll make the commitment to you to try and teach it. Second point for home. Let's go back to the first we started with. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. You know what? God has perfect timing. And He didn't just luck upon perfect timing with Jesus. He is the God of perfect timing. And that means He's got perfect timing in your life and mine. And all of those things in your life and all of those things in my life that seem hard, seem difficult, seem unfair, seem challenging, seem marvelous, seem delightful, seem scary. All of those things, we have a God of perfect timing. In sickness and in health, we have a God of perfect timing. And we need to rest in that, and we need to acknowledge Him for that, and we need to pray for His timing, that we will live in His timing. Last point for home. Let every person, this is Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now Paul's talking about the Roman emperor there. But if you go back to Isaiah 45, if you go to, to his writings to Timothy, you will find over and over God raises up kings and God puts them down. He is a God of history. And the God of history 
put the world together. Alexander the Great was not just good at the battlefield. Whether he knows it or not, the God of history had already prophesied his victories because he was a tool in the hand of God making things right so there would be a fullness of time so that Jesus could come. That same God of history is still writing. And that same prophetic God has told us how it ends. And we're working toward that end. And it's my prayer for you that the God of history will be with you as we continue to live our days. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word and to learn and to see your hand, to see your fingerprints on the events of the world, not just in history, but on the world around us today. Confident that your fingerprints will continue in this world. You will not abandon the world. You will not forsake the world. You will not forsake your word. You will not miss your prophetic pronouncements. And we get to live as your children and watch what you do and be on your team. And for that we're most honored and we're most appreciative. We confess we don't deserve it. We confess we're not good enough. We confess we're not talented enough. But we also laugh at the ability you have to use us so well that it's almost humorous. And it's delightful. So in the midst of all of the issues and difficulties that everybody in this, in this group hearing this message have, Lord, it's my prayer that you will come in peace into their lives in your good timing. Give them the wisdom and the knowledge and the strength and the comfort and the compassion and the kindness and everything it takes to live through their moments honoring you, the God of history and the God of our future. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.